the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to the reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for March 1st. I'm Maria from Drake University. Here's our first story. Naming Honors Former Teacher, Early Childhood Facility Named Ann E. Nelson Early Learning Center by Tim Johnson. Council Bluffs Community School District's new early childhood facility under construction at 620 North 8th Street will be called the Ann E. Nelson Early Learning Center. The district's Board of Education approved the naming during its meeting Tuesday night. An ad hoc committee was formed in keeping with district policy to consider the naming of the center according to board materials. The committee recommended naming it after Ann Nelson after that was requested by Bob and Paulina Schlott, who embraced the vision of the Early Learning Center and provided the lead gift for the project. School officials believe the gift demonstrated to other foundations and private donors that the project will create an innovative model for how Iowa K-12 school systems provide early learning for children aged birth to five years old. Naming the center after Nelson commemorates her life as an educator, community volunteer, philanthropist, and champion for children and families, a press release from the district stated. She died in December at the age of 81. We are so grateful for the generosity of Bob and Paulina Schlott and for their interest in honoring the life of Ann Nelson at our beautiful Early Learning Center, Superintendent Vicki Murillo said in the press release. We cannot wait to have the smiles of infants, toddlers, and preschoolers fill the vibrant center. The Schlotts thought it was fitting to name the center after Nelson, Bob Schlott said. She left us very unexpectedly, and she's a dear lady and a friend of ours, he said. She did a lot for the community, and this was a great opportunity to give her some recognition. She was just a really good friend and a wonderful person. John P. Nelson, her widower, expressed his gratitude for the decision. Anne and I are good friends of the Schlotts, and they are aware of all the things Anne has done with her life, he said. Two or three weeks ago, they called me and they said they wanted to get my permission to name the facility after Anne. I think they were saddened and shocked by Anne's sudden death, as our whole family was. I think the whole family is... There's another headline here that is supported by a caption and a beautiful photo. The days are getting warmer. A pair of black squirrels scurry about a tree together at Bayless Park on Tuesday, February 28th, 2023. And they are two... Uh, black squirrels that have uh, kind of thin tails who are on a branch um, perhaps talking about where they're going to look for food next and another article saying our kids are headlined our kids are not for sale union workers warm there's another article here headlined our kids are not for sale union workers warn by tom barton Union workers from across Iowa gathered Monday at the state capitol to protest proposals making their way through the legislature, loosening state child labor laws. We are drawing a line in the sand now, said Charlie Wisherman, president of the Iowa Federation of Labor. Our kids are not for sale. We are not. We are not selling our kids out to multinational corporations for profit and cheap labor. Our kids are not for sale. The latter became a rallying chant at the union workers' march, as, excuse me, as the union workers marched to deliver letters to House and Senate Republican leaders outlining their concerns and urging them to kill the bill. 
The legislation, among other provisions, would let teens as young as 14 to request a waiver from the directors of the state workforce and education agencies to work as apprentices as part of, quote, work-based learning, end quote, programs in jobs formerly off-limits as being hazardous, including manufacturing, mining, construction, or processing, among others. And it provides employers immunity from civil liability if a child is injured, becomes ill, or dies on a job that is part of a, quote, work-based learning program, end quote. Republicans who approved the proposal in subcommittees have said the bills would help labor business excuse me, would help business and find businesses find workers in a tight labor market and to help young Iowans become more engaged in work. Senator Jason Schultz, a Republican from Schwelswick, and the bill's manager in the Senate argued concerns raised about putting children in harm's way are overblown and that the measure is aimed at updating an old law with reasonable standards. There's language in there for schools and employers to work together to try and teach some skills and to get children out into places where they become employable and start looking for a career, Schultz said. Iowa chapters of employer lobby groups representing small businesses, home builders, and hotels and restaurants back the proposals. Democrats and labor unions contend the measures weaken child labor protections and allow corporations already profiting from widespread use of illegal child labor to legalize their exploitation. They know one of the country's largest cleaning services for food processing companies was recently fined more than $1.5 million following an investigation by the U.S. Department of Labor. Department of Labor, which found Packers Sanitation Services Incorporated employed more than 100 children as young as 13 years old to clean dangerous meat process equipment, including at 13 meatpacking plants in eight states, including in Nebraska, Minnesota, and Kansas. Children were found to be using caustic cleaning chemicals and cleaning quote, dangerous, power-driven equipment like skull splitters and razor-sharp bone saws, according to the Associated Press. These proposals fly in the face of common sense as well as decades of research showing that hazardous jobs and excessive work hours can damage teens' health, development, and education, Wishman said in a statement. Wishman added that the proposed changes also directly contradict federal labor law, which prohibits children under 18 from working in meatpacking plants and bars 14 and 15 years old from working past 9 p.m. in the summer and 7 p.m. during the school year. The proposal also would make legal, quote, excuse me, the proposal would also make legal, allowing youth as young as 14 to work six-hour nightly shifts in industrial laundries or meat freezers during the school year and longer hours during summer months, allowing 15-year-olds to work on assembly production lines or loading and unloading shipments of items up to 50 pounds, allowing 16- and 17-year-olds to serve alcohol. Everything in our plant gets moved either by a fork truck, a crane, vacuum, or hooks. It's no place for 14- or 15-year-old kids to be, said Sandy Conway, a member of the United Steelworkers Local 105, who works at Arconic in Riverdale near Davenport. Conway said she has two 16-year-old granddaughters and two 14-year-old granddaughters, who she said have no business in that environment. Each of the bills, Senate File 167 and House Study Bill 134, has passed out of subcommittee, but neither has been approved by the chamber's respective committees. Ryan Drew with Operating Engineers Local 150 and Jesse Case, Secretary Treasurer and Business Agent with Teamsters Local 238 in Cedar Rapids, called on legislators, legislators to get to work on solving problems facing working families and their children, including low wages, wage theft, unsafe work, lack of access to affordable childcare, and underfunded public schools.
Don't relieve employers from liability when kids get hurt. Strengthen work comp laws so that you've weakened because our kids are not for sale, Kay said. Don't cut school funding and send our kids to work in the factory. That's the exact opposite of the direction our state should be moving in. And there's a photo attached to this article as well. The photo caption is Iowa Senate Minority Leader Zach Walls holds a photo of a minor cleaning a slaughterhouse as he talks about a proposal from Iowa Republicans to loosen child labor laws in the state. And the photo is indeed of Zach Walls. He's in a blue suit with a dark blue tie. He's holding up a photo of a child who seems to be in some sort of safety gear while doing cleaning on some brightly colored equipment. Behind Senator Walls is an American flag, some green curtains, and he is standing at a podium with some lights illuminating him when he's giving a press conference. Our next story is more news of what's coming out of the Capitol in Des Moines. GOP advances bill to change who qualifies for food aid. Measure adds asset tests to see who qualifies for SNAP and Medicaid by Tom Barton. State House Republicans advanced legislation Tuesday that would add more restrictions and requirements to public assistance programs. The measures would require an asset test for Iowans applying for the Federal Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, more commonly known as food stamps, as well as for Medicaid, the joint federal and state program that finances health care coverage annually for roughly 805,000 low-income and disabled Iowans. Iowa now requires recipients to meet an income threshold but does not restrict assets. Senate Study Bill 1105 and House File 3 both passed out of committee largely along party lines with Democrats opposed, making them eligible for further consideration and floor debate this legislative session. The, measure propo- the measures propose the State Department of Health and Human Services enlist a private vendor to verify assets, identity, and other eligibility requirements for hundreds of thousands of Iowans participating in public assistance programs involving federal and state benefits no later then July 1st, 2025. Republicans said requiring Iowans who are receiving a public assistance benefits to undergo more rigorous eligibility verification reviews would bolster program efficiency and weed out abuse and make sure the people who are applying are eligible. The intention of this bill is to ensure Iowa's welfare programs are sustainable and remain available for the Iowans who truly need them, said bill sponsor Representative Thomas Janeri, Republican Lamars. The legislature is dedicated to protecting Iowa's safety net for Iowans in need, while at the same time protecting Iowa taxpayers from paying services for ineligible individuals. Democrats contend cases of fraud are low and push Republicans for evidence. The Iowa Department of Inspection and Appeals responded to 4,696 fraud referrals for the fiscal year ending June 30th. Investigations resulted in savings to the state of more than $8.4 million, according to a 2022 Fraud in Public Assistance Programs report. Of the referrals received by the department during the fiscal year, 97% were related to SNAP investigations. Under the legislation, which was amended following concerns that having a car or modest savings could disqualify already economically stressed Iowa families from public assistance, households could have a maximum of $15,000 in assets. The test would apply to all liquid assets, such as checking and savings accounts, and personal property excluding one vehicle. The bills were amended to exclude a second vehicle with a fair market value less than $10,000, among other personal property and assets that could be counted against recipients. They also established the income threshold for Iowan families receiving food assistance at 160% of the federal poverty level. That equates to a household income of about $48,000 for a family of four. Senator Sarah Trone-Garriott, Des Moines, West Des Moines, 
excuse me, Democrat West Des Moines, argued the proposed change would likely raise the state's costs by increasing the amount of paperwork administrative oversight, which callously, while callously taking food out of the mouths of tens of thousands of children who represent one-third of the approximately 300,000 people in Iowa who experience food insecurity. Trone Garriott noted that Pennsylvania in 2015 dished its asset test for SNAP after a three-year pilot program that saw administrative costs outweigh reductions in spending. Iowa's average monthly SNAP participation of roughly 279000 in the 2022 budget year was the lowest since 2008, according to federal data. Two-thirds of these households have children in them, said Representative Austin Bath, Democrat Des Moines. So I think it's really important as we raise barriers to these programs, we realize that this may have unintended consequences of having children go without the food they would otherwise receive. Critics, too, argue asset hurdles would hurt low-income seniors and recipients with health problems. Democrats, as well, worried the legislation will create problems at a time when Iowans on Medicaid could lose their coverage over the next year. Under the COVID-19 public health emergency, the federal government required state Medicaid agencies to provide coverage, even if an individual's eligibility changed, but the emergency is set to expire. The Senate bill does not include other House changes proposed in the House, excuse me, the Senate bill does not include other changes proposed in the House bill, which would require able-bodied adults, Medicaid recipients, to work at least 20 hours a week to receive health care benefits, bar SNAP recipients from buying candy and soda. Bill sponsor and Senate Health and Human Services Chair Senator Jeff Edler, Republican State Center, said House and Senate Republicans are working to find agreement where we can. Any legislation that would change Iowa's SNAP program would require federal approval. Janeri said the bill would head to the House Budget Committee and have a fiscal note drafted by the nonpartisan Legislative Services Agency analyzing the fiscal impacts of the bill. Edler estimated the legislation would cost $3 million to implement. Our next article is Month of Family Leave for Mother Advances. State employees who give birth would have access to one month of paid family leave and partners would have access to one week of paid leave under legislation advanced Monday by state lawmakers. The proposal is one element of legislation put forward in a broader health care bill by Governor Kim Reynolds. In the Iowa House, majority of Republicans are tackling the governor's proposals on a piece-by-piece basis. A state employee who adopts a child also would have access to four weeks of paid family leave under the proposed legislation. Under current policy, state workers who give birth must first have exhausted all vacation and sick days before being eligible for unpaid family leave. The governor's legislation liaison told state lawmakers during a legislative hearing on the proposed mo- on the proposal Monday at the Iowa Capitol. Governor Reynolds is committed to making Iowa the best state in which to live, work, and raise a family, said Molly Severn, the governor's legislative liaison. As a benefit to better support our workforce and their families, the governor proposes to offer state employee paid maternity and paternity leave. Lobbyists for two two groups, Iowa ACES 360 and the American Heart Association, spoke in favor of the bill during Monday's hearing, and both recommended lawmakers expand the proposal to six weeks of paid leave, which is recommended by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. In total, 14 organizations or state agencies support the bill, and none have registered in opposition according to state lobbying records. The legislative panel of two Republicans and one Democrat advanced the proposal. House Study Bill 201, which is now eligible for consideration by the full House Committee on Commerce. Unemployment benefits. A year after enacting stricter requirements for receiving unemployment benefits, Senate Republicans advanced a bill 
would require Iowans to conduct more job searches to get them. Senate Study Bill 1159 passed out of the Chamber's Workforce Committee, making it eligible for further consideration and a floor debate this session on a 7-5 to party-line vote with Democrats opposed. The bill would require a person applying for unemployment benefits to complete four to six job searches a week to earn benefits, depending on the number of job openings published by the state's workforce agency. The more jobs available, the more work searches one must complete. Iowa Department of Ed seeks nominations for Teacher of the Year by Tim Johnson. The Iowa Department of Education is accepting nominations for the 2024 Iowa Teacher of the Year through April 1st. Anyone can nominate a teacher for the Honors Administration, Colleagues, Students, parents, college faculty, and associations. The Teacher of the Year Award provides an opportunity to recognize an Iowa teacher who motivates, challenges, and inspires excellence, who is respected by students and peers, who is a dedicated professional and who helps nurture hidden talents and abilities, who is a creative, caring individual, who takes teaching beyond textbooks and blackboards, and who is an exceptional, exceptional teacher helping to redefine American education. Nominees must be a career teacher, hold a valid Iowa teaching license, and be currently employed by a public school district in Iowa. Self-nominations and nominations from family members are not accepted. To make a nomination, go to educateiowa.gov and scroll down to the nominate a teacher heading. And now for our face of the day, Bubs the cat. And it's a very nice headshot of uh, dear Bubs with his whiskers shining bright and his eyes looking into the camera. Bubs the cat is an old man looking for a peaceful home to be a part of. Bubs is an eight-year-old male, domestic short hair, who is currently available for adoption at Midlands Humane Society, 1020 Railroad Avenue in Council Bluffs. Shelter staff members describe him as friendly, affectionate, and gentle. It's also noted that his front claws are removed. He's lived in a home with an and he's lived in another excuse me, he's lived in a home with another cat before. His adoption fee is only $50, which includes a microchip, neutering, and age-appropriate vaccines. In other shelter news, Midlands and Leadership Council Bluffs are teaming up to host Discs for Dogs, a disc golf fundraiser tournament to benefit the shelter at Iowa Western Community College on May 6th. The tournament begins at 9 a.m. and will take place at the Treasure Cove Disc Golf Course on campus. The fun and fundraising will continue the next weekend at Midland's annual gala, which will take place at the Mid-American Center on May 12th. Registration and other information for both events can be found on the Midlands website. More information about fostering, volunteering, and donation opportunities can be found at midlandhumanesociety.org or by calling 712-396-2270. Like their Facebook page to keep up with daily shelter news. The shelter can also be found at Midlands Humane on Twitter and Midlands Humane Society on Instagram. What a great story. I hope Buff finds a wonderful home. I hope Bubs finds an excellent home. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for March 1st on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Maria from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. And now for today's obituaries. Fred Arthur Divelbess. Fred Arthur Divelbess, age 86, died February 27, 2023. He was born on October 20, 1936, excuse me, 1936, to John and Inez Divelbess near Logan, Iowa. He married Lorraine Collins in June of 1957, and they have shared a lifetime together of 65 years.
Fred was a hardworking farmer his whole life. His strong and scarred hands showed how much he did caring for livestock, raising crops, building, repairing, and countless farm tasks. He did chores twice a day all through the years in all kinds of weather. His honesty and integrity permeated all of his business. Fred and Lorraine placed high value on the importance of family. Three children were born to them, and then six more joined the family by adoption. Their home is a place where God is reverenced and loved. The heritage of faith passed on by this man is treasured by his grateful children. He was preceded in death by his parents, two sisters, Lois Graybill and Louise Jones, and great-granddaughter Amelia. Fred is survived by his wife, Lorraine, his children, David and spouse Melanie Darcy, Percy, Michelle and spouse Dan Jones, Donald, Jesse, Nathan, and spouse Emily, Iris, Oshana, and Bedane, grandchildren Courtney, Caitlin, Kyle, Aaron, Neil, Heidi, Kaisley, Brandon, and great-grandchildren. The family would like to thank the compassionate caregivers at Hanson House for their care and attention. We are grateful. A memorial service will be held at 10 a.m. on Saturday, March 4th at Harvest Alliance Church, 727 Main Street, Minden, Iowa. Visitation with the family after the service. Memorial gifts can be directed to Hands and House in Council Bluffs. Marion V. French Marion V. French, age 99, passed away February 26, 2023. She was born June 18, 1923, to the late Charles and Prudence maiden name Hale Powell in Crescent, Iowa. In addition to her parents, she was preceded in death by her husband, Franklin Pat French, sons David French and Larry French, sisters Stasia Anderson and Evelyn Anderson, brothers Leo Powell, Gerald Powell, Vernon Powell, Bernard Powell, and Jack Powell, grandson Tyler French. Marion is survived by her daughter, Sherry, and partner Gary Snyder, French Bino, daughter-in-law Diana French, grandchildren Kathleen Hatcher, Tamara Wagner, and Matthew French, great-grandchildren, nieces, nephews, and cousins. Private graveside, private graveside services will be held. Memorials are suggested to Hillcrest Hospice. And Elizabeth Trujillo. Elizabeth Trujillo, age 88, passed away February 27, 2023. She was born March 6, 1934, to the late Joe and Mary Miestas in Fruta, Colombia. In addition to her parents, she was preceded in death by spouse Roy Trujillo Sr., sons Roy Trujillo Jr., and Edwin Trujillo, siblings Phil Miestas, Danny Miestas, Jimmy Miestas, and Stella Markison. Elizabeth is survived by her children, Marie Mendoza, Dorothy Jackson, and Billy Trujillo, sisters Virginia West and Mary Lou Biffeth, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and great-great-grandchildren, nieces, nephews, and cousins. Memorial services will be held at 11 a.m. at Hoyle Kanoski Funeral Home on Thursday, March 2nd, 2023. And now for the sports section. Bubble watch as season draws to a close. March Madness is coming up fast. Here is what to know, along with some key games to watch, and who's on the bubble ahead of Selection Sunday for the NCAA tournament. Key dates. The basketball calendar is getting crowded. Up first are the conference tournaments. The ACC tournament starts, excuse me, things off March 7th to 11th in Greensboro, North Carolina. The Big 12 tournament will be March 8th through the 11th in Kansas City, Missouri. 
The Big Ten tournament will be March 8th through the 12th in Chicago. The Big East tournament will be March 8th through the 11th in New York. The Pac-12 tournament will be March 8th through the 11th in Las Vegas. And the SEC tournament will be March 8th through the 12th in Nashville, Tennessee. March Madness. Selection Sunday is March 12th, when bracket matchups will be set for the first four and first and second round games that stretch from Florida to California. Sweet 16 weekend will see games in New York City, Las Vegas, Kansas City, Missouri, and Louisville, Kentucky. Where is the final four? In Houston on April 1st with the championship game on April 3rd. Basketball aficionados take note. The women's NCAA tournament will hold its final four in Dallas, a four-hour drive up the road from Houston. Betting guide. Who's going to win the national championship? With the season still rolling, the better favorites of this week to reach the final four are Houston, Kansas, Purdue, and Alabama, according to FanDuel Sportsbook. That matches the top teams in the NCAA's initial seed watch, too, and many of the teams in the AP Top 25. Bubble Watch, Arizona State, with a record of 20-9. and nine. Desmond Cambridge deserves to be in the NCAA tournament after swishing a 55-footer at the buzzer to stun rival and then number 7 Arizona, 89-88, on the road Saturday. The Sun Devils have won two in a row and four of five to claw their way into the postseason picture. Sitting 61st in the NCAA's net ranking, they still have work to do but close the regular season against fourth-ranked UCLA and fellow bubble team USC, a clear path to locking up a tourney spot. A Auburn with a record of 19-10. and 10. The Tigers ended a tough February by dropping five of seven, including a 32-point drubbings at Kentucky. Three more of those recent losses came on the road, Tennessee, Texas A&M, and Vanderbilt. It doesn't get any easier for Auburn, which finishes the regular season at second-ranked Alabama and against number 12 Tennessee. The Tigers, ranked 36th in the NET, could use another quad one victory. Michigan, with a record of 17-12. With freshman Doug McDaniel playing his best basketball of the season, the Wolverines have won three straight and a 6-8 of eight to make a late push. They can significantly improve their tournament hopes by winning road games against Illinois and number 15 Indiana this week. Memphis with a record of 22-7. to Kendrick Davis and DeAndre Williams have the Tigers and coach Penny Hardaway on the verge of making the NCAA tournament for the second straight season. They have won 4-5, of five, moving up to 38th in the NET, but can't afford to lose at SMU on Thursday and could use a victory in their nationally televised home finale against top-ranked Houston on Sunday. Davis, who is averaging 21.2 points and 5.7 assists, missed the first meeting with Houston, a 72-64 loss. Penn State, with a record of 17-12. The Nittany Lions seem like a tournament lock after winning three straight games against Illinois, Minnesota, and Ohio State. But then they squandered a 19-point second-half lead to Rutgers on Sunday, leaving the senior-laden team on bubble watch down the stretch. Coach Micah Shrewsbury's group can bounce back in a big way with a quad number one games at Northwestern and against number 21, Maryland. Charleston with a record of 28 and 3, Florida Atlantic with a record of 26 and 3, and Liberty with a record of 24 and 7. All three dominated their leagues and won the regular season championship, but they will likely need to win their conference tournaments, all of them playing in one big league, one bid league to make the NCAA field. Games to watch. Xavier at Providence, Wednesday, 6.30 p.m. Eastern on FS1. 
The Friars are 15-0 and at home this season and have won 17 straight at Amica Mutual Pavilion. That streak could be tested by Xavier, which is the lone Big East team with a chance to catch number 6 Marquette for the top seed in the conference tournament. While the 19th-ranked Musketeers are a lock for the NCAA tournament, the Friars could use another quad one victory to strengthen their resume. Purdue at Wisconsin, Thursday, 9 p.m. Eastern, FS1. Wisconsin has dropped 7 of its last 11, leaving the Badgers squarely on the NCAA bubble. Beating 5th-ranked Purdue would be a huge boost for a team that, that hasn't won two in a row in two months. Oklahoma State at Texas Tech, Saturday, 6 p.m. Eastern on ESPN2. The Cowboys have dropped five straight, all without guard Avery Anderson, who is out indefinitely following wrist surgery. The Red Raiders gained traction with home wins against three ranked teams in the past month, Iowa State, Kansas State, and Texas. Madness Nears, Conference Tourney Titles at Stake in Seasons Last Week by John Marshall. The final week of the regular season is here, and the calendar is rounding towards March Madness. A handful of regular season titles are already wrapped up. Several are still in the air. Top-ranked Houston clinched the American Athletic Conference crown, earning at least a share of the fourth of the for, for the fourth time in five years. Number four, UCLA, has its first Pac-12 championship since 2012-2013. Number 10, Gonzaga, and number 17, St. Mary's, shared the West Coast Conference title after the Zag's 77-68 win last weekend. They could meet again in the WCC championship game March 7th. The rest of the major conferences will go down to the wire. A look at the regular season title still up for grabs in this week's top tw- uh, AP Top 25. ACC. The Atlantic Coast Conference has turned on its head as a perennial powers like North Carolina and Duke have not lived up to expectations. Number 25 has been the biggest surprise. Excuse me, number 25, Pittsburgh, has been the biggest surprise. Picked to finish 14th out of 15 teams in the preseason poll, the Panthers enter the final week of the regular season with a half-game lead over number 16 Miami at 14-4 in conference play. Pitt, with a record of 21-8, moved into the AP Top 25 this week for the first time since 2016. The Panthers can clinch their first Atlantic Coast Conference regular season title since joining the league in 2013 with wins over Notre Dame on Wednesday and Miami on Saturday. The Hurricanes, with a record of 23-6, 14-5, another surprise ACC team, can clinch at least a share of the title with a win over Pittsburgh. Number 13, Virginia, with a record of 21-6, 13-5, and Clemson, record 21-8, 13-5. We're still in the mix to share this crown by winning both games this week if Pitt loses twice. One was eliminated from contention when the Cavaliers and Tigers played each other on Tuesday. The Big 12. Another season, another Kansas run at a Big 12 title. The number three, Jayhawks, with a record of 24-5, 12-4, have won six straight games and received eight first-place votes in this week's top AP Top 25. Kansas has a tough week ahead, having faced Texas Tech on Tuesday before playing number nine, Texas, on Saturday. The Jayhawks pulled out a three-point win at Texas Tech earlier this season and beat the Longhorns by eight. Texas, with a record of 22-7, 11-5, is a game back with a matchup against number 22, TCU, on Wednesday. Number 7, Baylor, is 11-2 games back after beating Oklahoma State on Monday night and closes the regular season at home against Iowa State on Saturday. Number 11, Kansas State, is two games behind the Jayhawks at 10-6 with games against Oklahoma on Wednesday and West Virginia on Saturday. My parents attended the University of Kansas, so we'll be following these games very closely this weekend.
The Big Ten. Number five, Purdue, with a record of 24-5, and 13-5, has a share of the Big Ten title and can clinch it outright with a win over Wisconsin on Thursday or Illinois with on Sunday. Number 15, Indiana, which beat Purdue twice this season. Number 21, Maryland, Northwestern, and Michigan are all two games behind the Boilermakers with records of 11-7. SEC. Number 2, Alabama, 25-4, 15-1, has navigated off-court issues to claim a share of the Southeastern Conference title. The Crimson Tide have opportunities to clinch outright against Auburn on Wednesday and number 24, Texas A&M on Saturday. Alabama has a two-game lead over the Aggies with a record of 21-8, 13-3. Big East, number 6, Marquette, 23-6, 15-3, has its highest seat rankings since 1977-1978 and has secured a share of the Big East title. The Golden Eagles could have clinched outright over a win, with a win over Butler on Tuesday or Wood versus St. John's on Saturday. Number 19, Xavier, and number 20, Providence, are two games back at 13-5. Mountain West, number 18, San Diego State, 23-5-14-2, has a share of the Mountain West Conference title and could earn the outright championship Tuesday against Boise State or Saturday against Wyoming. Boise State and Nevada are two games back at 12-4. And now for some football news. Rodgers quarterbacks become top attraction as in at NFL Combine by Michael Merritt. The Green Bay Packers will continue to play the waiting game with Aaron Rodgers. They're also ready with a backup plan. Though general manager Brian Gutenkunt's first choice still appears to be bringing back the four-time league MVP and longtime face of the team, Gutenkunt acknowledged the Packers are willing to go with Jordan Love if needed. I think he's ready to play. I think he's ready to be an NFL starting quarterback, Gutenkunt said Tuesday referring to Love. He's worked really hard. He's shown a lot of progression. I know he's really eager to have that, and I think that's the next step in his progression, is to play. First, though, Rodgers must make his call. The one-time Super Bowl champ is scheduled to cost the Packers $59.5 million, a prohibitively high number that would prevent the team from doing much in free agency. Rodgers has already acknowledged publicly if he does return, he would like to redo his contract. He also has completed the, quote, darkness retreat, end quote, he said would help him sort out his options. Green Bay also must decide whether to exercise its fifth-year option on Love, their first-round pick from 2020, who has not played much as Rodgers' backup. Extending Love's contract, though, next season would cost the team $20.3 million in 2024. Otherwise, the Packers next year could be facing the same dilemma the New York Giants and Baltimore Ravens now have, using franchise tags to keep their starters, Daniel Jones and Lamar Jackson, around. Ravens general manager Eric DaCosta is scheduled to speak Wednesday at the NFL's annual scouting combine. Still, Gutenunst is willing to be patient with Rodgers and hopeful he'll have an answer before free agency begins March 15th. If not, he'll be ready to go either direction. We'll move forward and have conversations as we go, Gutenunst said. There will be a point here soon where we have to make some decisions moving forward. It's a familiar scenario for Packers fans who still remember when three-time MVP Brett Favre retired in 2008, handing the job to Rodgers, Green Bay's first-round pick in 2005. When Favre later decided to return, he was eventually traded to the New York Jets. The Jets are in the quarterback market yet again and are one of the several teams now jockeying for position to answer their own quarterback questions. While Jets general manager Joe Douglas acknowledged the team remains committed to Zach Wilson, Douglas also said team officials have spoken with the recently released Derek Carr, and they plan to meet again this week. I can say Carr left a strong impression with everybody, Douglas said. Obviously, we're going to be exploring the veteran quarterback market this offseason and we'll look at every available option. 
but they're not alone. Carolina also plans to meet this week with Carr, a person familiar with the situation told the Associated Press on Tuesday. The person spoke to the AP on condition of anonymity because the term doesn't announce its meeting. Excuse me, the team doesn't announce its meetings with free agents. Two other veterans also recently hit the open market. The Washington Commanders cut Carson Wentz on Monday, and 2014 Heisman Trophy winner Marcus Mariota was released Tuesday by the Atlanta Falcons. Both teams seem content to go with second-year quarterbacks Desmond Ritter and Sam Howell, at least for now. If you go back to his junior year coming out, Howell is a guy that has some very good grades on him, Washington coach Ron Rivera said. I look at our people's grades, and we had some very good grades on him, so we feel very confident in his ability. He's got a good arm. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers also may try the young arm of Kyle Trask, if Tom Brady does not come out of retirement again. (laughs) That may be out of necessity, with the Buccaneers more than $57 million over the cap. Still, Coach Todd Bowles wouldn't rule out signing a veteran. We understand we're over the cap, he said. We have a long-term plan. We don't want to sacrifice one year for paying someone as opposed to sacrificing the future. But we'll go out and we'll be smart about it. It's also a desirable place because we do have talent. The same is true of the Packers, who have already restructured the contract of running back Aaron Jones and expect promising second-year receivers Christian Watson and Romeo Dobbs to continue improving next season, whether it's Rodgers or Love throwing passes. Obviously, Rodgers is a big part if he comes back, Gutenun said. He's a big part of what we're doing, but at the same time, I don't think that will really change the Roger, excuse me, the roster much. And now for some local sports news. Mustangs Power Through the Rams by Austin Heinen. Dallas center Grimes showed why they're named the tournament's number one seed as their offense proved too much to handle as the Mustangs went on a 15-2 run to start the second to put away Glenwood 57-39 in the state quarterfinals at the Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines. They're really good, Rams coach Brian Rasmussen said. I think we had a good game plan and some of the things we did defensively in the first half created some issues for them. They weren't able to run everything that they wanted and I think we competed well. We created some problems for them for a while but they made some good second half adjustments and forced us to have to change things defensively. The Mustangs wasted no time jumping out to an early 8-0 run within the first two minutes of the game. The Rams had a response in the form of an 8-0 run of their own that spanned through the final minutes of the first quarter and the opening minute of the second quarter to tie the game at 12-12. However, the Mustangs regained the lead with an 11-0 run to regain the advantage. The Rams scored the next four of seven points to climb back with an eight, but a late basket put the Mustangs back ahead by 10 at the break. The Mustangs didn't feel comfortable up by 10 and got to work right away to construct a 15-2 run through the opening five minutes of the third quarter. The Rams were unable to close the gap in the second half as the Rams fell in the quarterfinal in what was the program's fourth consecutive trip to the state tournament. Leading the Rams with a double-double was South Dakota State commit Jenna Hopp, who finished with 11 points and 14 rebounds. You're always excited when your season goes to the state tournament, Hopp said. My goal was to help my team get to state every year, and we were able to do that. This year, we just had to play the number one team in the state, and they're the reason. then they're the number one team for a reason. They have great girls, and we tried to throw them off, but they're good. Hop continued to discuss what it meant to end each season in the state tournament. It's what everyone hopes for, Hop said. Obviously, I've been very blessed to play with some amazing players and coaches. It's been awesome, but I'm just glad we have been able to change the culture a bit here at Glenwood and hope that it stays that way. Kate Hughes also had 11 points for the Rams and two assists. Danica Arnolda added eight points as well. The Rams will graduate six seniors from this year's team. Rasmussen spoke about how this group raised the bar after ending all four of their seasons in Des Moines. 
This senior class has been tremendous, Rasmussen said. As I told them in the locker room, they've created a new expectation for Glenwood girls basketball, and that is awesome. We didn't end things how we wanted to today. We're not satisfied with just getting here, but we're still proud of how they created this expectation and what a season looks like and where every team's goal is going to be from here on out. I'm super proud of everyone, every one of them. Glenwood ends the year with a record of 16-9. to and there are photos attached to this article. Jenna Hopp, Glenwood versus Dallas Center Grimes, 4A Girls State Basketball Quarterfinal, Wells Fargo Arena, Des Moines, Iowa, on February 23rd, or excuse me, February 28th, 2023. And the photo is a great shot of what I'm assuming is Jenna. She's about to jump into the air to toss that ball into the basket, wearing her black and gold jersey with the number three emblazoned across her chest. She has her hair back in a ponytail but to, to keep out of her way. But however, she has four players from the opposing team around her ready to block that defense. So uh, they're all wearing their white jerseys with red numbers on their backs and uh, getting ready to make that block. There's also another photo down here that captioned Team with Trophy, Glenwood versus Dallas Center Grimes, 4A Girl State Basketball Quarterfinal, Wells Fargo Arena, Rena, Des Moines, Iowa, on, once again, February 28th, 2023. And it is of the Glenwood team in their black and excuse me, black and gold jerseys with the uh, bronze statue, uh, bronze trophy in front of them. And their coaches are standing behind them. They all have smiles on their faces, proud of all the work they've put in for this season. And our next story, I'll do the picture first to kind of get you a feel for what we're going to talk about. Creighton's Baylor Shearman, 55, moves past UConn's Andre Jackson Jr., 44, during their game on Saturday in Omaha. Creighton won the game 56-53. to And it's a photo of a Creighton player uh, barreling down the court trying to get around his opponent from the University of Connecticut's basketball team. And he's got a look of determination on his face while he's wearing his gray jersey with the blue letters of Creighton and number 55 emblazoned across his chest. He's got the basketball in his hands, ready to dribble it down the court. Our headline is Creighton Looking for Momentum and Confidence as Postseason Looms by Joel Lorenzi. Greg McDermott suggests shrugged without having to think much further. Well, it's wins, the 13th year Creighton coach said. That's how you get momentum back. The Blue Jays, with a record of 18-11, 12-6 in the Big East, had enough of the stuff to sell just a couple weeks ago. After a pair of losses dropped CU from Big East regular season title contention to fourth place in one fell swoop, the Jays are yearning for the formula that put them back atop the conference. Games against Georgetown and DePaul closed the season could help. To close the season could help, excuse me. As the two teams dwelling at the depths of the Big East's low abyss, beaten by Creighton in their initial meetings by a combined 25 points, the Jays are expected to handle both teams once more. But sophomore Trey Alexander has heard that story before. He's not interested in leaving any room for disaster. I feel like there's a lot of games we've been favored in that we've lost this year, sophomore Trey Alexander said. So we just we can't really take that into terms of it just putting us in the W column for a win. We're good enough to beat anybody in the country, but it doesn't come down to play. We could lose. Excuse me. But if we don't come to play, we could lose to anybody. In reality, there might not be a ton that Creighton stand to learn that Marquette and Villanova didn't already teach though through last week's pair of losses. But the Jays recognized what they'd missed. Energy, connectivity, things that lifted CU during its eight-game win streak. Things it'll need to play games in order to get back. 
Unlike past Creighton teams, the, these Jays have relied on and honed their defense, a necessary crutch given their offensive inconsistency. At its peak, it's bent several of the nation's better offenses out of shape. When, when it hasn't taken form, like out in Philadelphia over the weekend, things can go downhill. Quick. Saturday belonged to Villanova's Eric Dixon, who had a career night. It was something the Jays had to live with, with the big man only going one for six from deep in their first meeting. But the flaws that Dixon's performance exposed are glaring. Creighton's time to figure out how to patch those flaws, despite their play style, is ticking. There are going to be some teams that have big, excuse me, that have bigs that shoot better than Dixon, Alexander said. We're going to have to be able to move, play with more effort and energy. I felt like we were kind of dead that game. McDermott admitted that with playing teams a second time, this time of year can get monotonous for some. The Jays are grilling film, seeking things they can tweak and perhaps do differently when meeting teams again. He describes it as a little bit of a grind. He cited Monday's energy and enthusiasm as being as good as it's been in quite some time. Creighton is only about a couple weeks away from mistakes potentially ending their season. The times of surviving and advancing are around the corner. CU's final couple of regular season games shouldn't just give it a swing of confidence heading it into the thick of March. It should bring the prospective prize, a deep tournament run that's erased any memory of its six-game skid, into view. I think they see the light at the end of the tunnel, like, okay, this is almost over from a regular season standpoint, and then it's time to get ready for what comes next. Another photo attached to this article, Creighton's Sharif Mitchell, number four, goes for two points in the UConn versus Creighton men's basketball game in Omaha on Saturday. And this is a really awesome shot. Kudos to the photographer. He's capturing this player who is reaching for a rebound. Um, excuse me, not, not a rebound. A shot off the rim of the basket and using the backboard perhaps for assistance and he's jumping in the air with two players from the University of Connecticut number five and three behind him looking on and he is pretty set to make this basket he's jumping in the air in his white jersey with the blue letters and numbers and also some pretty cool pink basketball shoes that completes our sports section. I'd also like to share a Today in History segment. Today's highlights. On March 1st, 1974, seven people, including former Nixon White House aides H.R. Haldeman and John D. Erklemann, former Attorney General John Mitchell and former Assistant Attorney General Robert Mardian, were indicted on charges of conspiring to obstruct justice in connection with the Watergate break-in. These excuse me, four defendants were convicted in January 1975, though Mardian's conviction was later reversed. On this date, in 1815, Napoleon, having escaped exile in Elba, arrived in Cannes, France, and headed for Paris to begin his, quote, 100 days, in quote, rule. In 1867, Nebraska became the 37th state as President Andrew Johnson signed a proclamation. Happy birthday, Nebraska. In 1893, investor Nikola Tesla first publicly demonstrated radio during a meeting of the National Electric Light Association in St. Louis by transmitting electromagnetic energy without wires. In 1932, Charles A. Lindbergh Jr., the 20-month-old son of Charles and Ann Lindbergh, was kidnapped from the family home near Hopewell, New Jersey. Remains identified as those of the child were found the following May. In 1954, four Puerto Rican nationalists opened fire from the Spectators Gallery of the U.S. House of Representatives, wounding five members of Congress. In 1966, the Soviet space probe Venera 3 impacted the surface of Venus, becoming the first spacecraft to reach another planet. However, Venera was unable to transmit any data, its communication systems having failed. In 1977, a bomb went off inside a men's room at the U.S. Capitol. The radical group Weather Underground claimed responsibility for the pre-dawn blast. 
In 2005, Dennis Rader, the church-going family man accused of leading a double life as the BTK serial killer, was charged in Wichita, Kansas with 10 counts of first-degree murder. Radar later pleaded guilty and received multiple life sentences. A closely divided Supreme Court outlawed the death penalty for juvenile criminals. In 2010, Jay Leno returned as host of NBC's The Tonight Show. In 2015, tens of thousands marched through Moscow in honor of slain Russian opposition leader Boris Nepstov, who has been shot to death on February 27th. And in 2020, state officials said New York City had its first confirmed case of the coronavirus, a woman in her late 30s who had contracted the virus while traveling in Iran. Health officials in Washington state, announcing what was believed at the time to be the second U.S. death from the coronavirus, said the virus may have been circulating for weeks undetected in the Seattle area. And now for some national news. Nissan recalls more than 800,000 SUVs. Nissan recalled more than 809,000 small SUVs in the U.S. and Canada because a key problem can cause the ignition to shut off while they're being driven. The recall covers certain rogues from the 2014 through 2020 model years, as well as rogue sports from 2017 through 2022. Nissan said the SUVs have jackknife folding keys that may not stay fully open. If driven with the key partially folded, a driver could touch the fob, inadvertently turning off the engine. This can cause loss of engine power and power brakes, and the airbags might not inflate in a crash. The company said it's not aware of any crashes or injuries caused by the problem. Nissan hasn't come up with a fix yet. Owners will be notified in March with an interim letter telling them not to attach anything else to the key ring. Then they'll get another letter telling them to take their SUVs in for repairs. The automakers had owners with keys that won't stay in the open position should contact their dealers. Feds promise to trim back- backlog of healthcare investigations. Federal officials say they're working to cut down on the growing backlog of complaints lodged against healthcare providers insurers, or government agencies by patients who claim their civil rights or privacy were violated. Americans filed more than 51,000 complaints against health agencies last year, a number that grew 69% over the last five years, the Federal Health and Human Services Agency announced. Some complaints can take years to investigate. About two-thirds of the cases involve potential violations of health information privacy and security, a problem that worsened in recent years because of data breaches and cybersecurity hacks, the agency said. In 2021, more than 700 large breaches of health information were reported. Health insurer Anthem, for example, was forced to pay the government a record $16 million fine in 2018 after a data breach affecting about 79 million people, including names, birth dates, social security numbers, and medical IDs. Healthcare workers and patients can file federal complaints against providers, insurers, and government agencies when they think patients are being discriminated against or protected health information has been shared, a violation of a long-standing law known as HIPAA, or the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. HHS's Office of Civil Rights is responsible for investigating these complaints. The office will reorganize in an effort to more quickly investigate such complaints, the agency said Monday. The office will keep a dedicated division to investigating HIPAA complaints with a focus on the growing segment of cybersecurity breaches. It will also have three new different divisions with staff that focus on each of the following, policy, strategic planning, and enforcement. This structure will enable OCR staff to leverage its deep expertise and skills to ensure that we are protecting individuals under the range of federal laws that we are tasked with enforcing, HHS Office of Civil Rights Director Melanie Fontes-Rainer said in a statement. We kill them all. Russian soldiers in Ukraine call home. By Erika Kinitz. How do people raised with a sense of right and wrong end up involved in terrible acts of violence against others? 
That's the human mystery at the heart of 2,000 intercepted phone calls from Russian soldiers in Ukraine. These calls, obtained by the Associated Press, offer an intimate new perspective on Russian President Vladimir Putin's war, seen through the eyes of Russian soldiers themselves. The AP identified calls made in March 2022 by soldiers in a military division that Ukraine prosecutors say committed war crimes in Vuka, a town outside Kiev, that became an early symbol of Russian atrocities. They show how deeply unprepared young soldiers and their country were for the war to come. Many joined the military because they needed money. They were told they'd be welcomed as heroes for liberating Ukraine from what Russian officials falsely claimed are Nazi oppressors and their Western backers, and that Kiev would fall without bloodshed within a week. The intercepts showed that as soldiers realized how much they'd been misled, they grew more and more afraid. Violence that once would have been unthinkable became normal. Looting and drinking offered moments of rare reprieve. They tell their mothers what this war actually looks like, about the teenage Ukrainian boy who got his ears cut off, how the scariest sound is not the whistle of a rocket flying past, but the silence that means it's coming directly for you, how modern weapons can obliterate the human body so there's nothing left to bring home. This is the story of one of those men, Leonid. The AP couldn't reach Leonid directly, but did speak with his mother in Russia. The AP isn't using his full name to protect his family. The AP has no evidence of his individual actions besides his own testimony. Leonid became a soldier because he needed money. In the calls, there is an obvious moral dissonance between the way Leonid's mother raised him and what he is seeing and doing in Ukraine. Still, she defended her son, insisting he never even came into contact with civilians in Ukraine. No one thought it would be so terrible, his mother told the AP in January. My son just said one thing. My conscience is clear. They opened fire first. That's all. Kill if you don't want to be killed. Leonid's introduction to war came on February 24th as his unit crossed in Ukraine from Belarus and decimated a detachment of Ukrainians at the border. After his first fight, Leonid seemed to have compassion for the young Ukrainian soldiers they'd just killed. Leonid said, We shot from the tanks, machine guns, and rifles. We had no losses. We destroyed their four tanks. There were dead bodies lying around and burning, so we won. Mother, Oh, what a nightmare, Leonka said. You wanted to live at that moment, right, honey? Leonid, more than ever. Mother, it's hor it's totally horrible. Leonid, they were lying there, just 18 or 19 years old. Am I different from them? No, I'm not. The rules of normal life no longer apply. Unprepared for a prolonged attack, Russian soldiers ran short on basic supplies. One way for them to get what they needed or wanted was to steal. When Leonid tells his mother casually about looting, at first she can't believe he's stealing, but it's become normal for him. As he spoke, he watched a town burn on the horizon. Such a beauty, he says. Leonid, look, Mom, I'm looking at tons of houses, I don't know dozens, hundreds, and they're all empty. Everyone ran away. Mother, so all the people left, right? You guys aren't looting then, are you? You're not going into other people's houses? Leonid, of course we are, Mom. Are you crazy? Mother, oh, you are. What do you take from there? Leonid, we take food, bed linen, pillows, blankets, forks, spoons, pans. Mother laughing, you've got to be kidding me. Leonid, whoever doesn't have any clock, uh, socks, clean underwear, t-shirts, sweaters, the enemy is everybody. Leonid tells his mother about the terror of going on patrol and not knowing what or who they will encounter. He describes using lethal force at the slightest provocation against just about anyone. At first, she seems not to believe that Russian soldiers could be killing civilians. Leonid tells her that civilians were told to flee or shelter in basements so anyone who was outside must not be a real civilian. This was a whole of society war. Mercy war was for suckers. Mother, oh, Leonka, you've seen so much stuff there. Leonid, while civilians are lying around right on the street with their brains coming out. Mother, oh, God, you mean the locals? 
Leonid, yep, well, like, yeah, mother, are they the ones you guys shot or the ones, Leonid, the ones killed by our army? Mother, Leonka, they might just be peaceful people. Leonid, mom, there was a battle, and a guy would just pop up, you know, maybe we'd pull out a grenade launcher, or we had a case, a young guy was stopped, they took his cell phone. He had all this information about us and his telegram messages, where to bomb, how many we were, how many tanks we have. Mother, so they know everything. Leonid, he was shot right there on the spot. Mother, mm-hmm. Leonid, he was 17 years old, and that's it, right there. Mother, mm-hmm. Leonid, there was a prisoner. It was an 18-year-old guy. First, he was shot in his leg, then his ears were cut off, and after that, he admitted everything, and they killed him. Mother, did he admit it? Leonid, we don't imprison them. I mean, we kill them all. What it takes to get home alive. Leonid tells his mother he was nearly killed five times. Things are so disorganized, he says, it's not uncommon for Russians to fire on their own troops. Some soldiers shoot themselves just to get medical leave, he says. In another call, he tells his girlfriend that he's envious of his buddies who got shot in the feet and could go home. A bullet in your foot is like four months at home with crutches, he says. It would be awesome. He promised to bring home a collection of bullets for the kids. Trophies from Ukraine, he calls them. His mother says she's waiting for him. Of course you'll come, his mother says. No doubts. You're my beloved. Of course you'll come. You are my happiness. Leonid returned to Russia in May, badly wounded but alive. He told his mother Russia would win this war. And we'll close with some national news. Court skeptical on college debt. Conservative justices seem ready to sink the Biden relief program by Mark Sherman and Jessica Gresko. Conservative justices holding the Supreme Court's majority seem likely to sink President Joe Biden's plans to wipe away or reduce student loans held by millions of Americans. In arguments lasting more than three hours Tuesday, Chief Justice John Roberts led his conservative colleagues in questioning the administration's authority to broadly cancel federal student loans because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Republican-appointed judges on lower courts so far have blocked the plan. It was not clear that any of the six justices appointed by Republican presidents would approve the debt relief program, though Justices Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett appeared most open to the administration's arguments. Biden's only hope for being allowed to move forward with his plan appeared to be the slim possibilities, based on the arguments, that the court would find Republican-led states and individuals challenging the plan lacked the legal right to sue. That would allow the court to dismiss the lawsuits at a threshold stage without ruling on the basic idea of a loan forgiveness program that appeared to trouble the justices on the court's right side. Roberts was among the justices who grilled the Biden administration's top Supreme Court lawyer, Elizabeth Prelogar, and suggested that the administration exceeded its authority with the program. Roberts pointed to the wide impact and expense of the program, three times saying it would cost a half trillion dollars. The program is estimated to cost $400 billion over 30 years. Prelogar told the justices defaults and delinquencies will surge above pre-pandemic levels if the program isn't allowed to take effect because a pause on loan repayments ends no later than this summer. The states ask this court to deny this vital relief of to millions of Americans, she said. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for March 1st. The Nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 3 p.m. Iris volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about today's broadcast or any Iris program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. I'm Maria from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for listening.